Hey, everybody, this is Fran Prochella, and welcome to another podcast of World of Basketball, the podcast that shrinks the basketball globe for you and takes you to every corner of the basketball world. We discuss uh, we discuss college basketball, the NBA, the EuroLeague, international basketball, and certainly our topic lately uh, is the Olympic Games. And uh, we've had quite a few guests on that will be in Tokyo as a participant. I've just gotten back from Las Vegas, where I uh, actually did the first USA game, the surprising loss to Nigeria. The very first time a team from the country uh, from a, from the continent of Africa has defeated the United States in basketball since uh, since the pros, the NBA players have gotten involved. And it was a uh, I wouldn't say shocking because being courtside Nigeria with eight guys who currently play in the NBA, um, they looked the part. Uh, Team USA just trying to get their chemistry and continuity uh, was defeated that night. And of course, the next uh, two nights later, they were defeated by a veteran uh, Aussie Boomer team that uh, many of us think can medal, if not win the gold outright. We've, we've had Brian Gorgian on, the coach of the team. We've had uh, five-time Olympian and uh, Aussie great Andrew Gaze on. And my producer for these 56 podcasts, Christopher Tyler, another Aussie. Um, Chris, yeah, I know you had to be proud and impressed as, as to what you saw on Tuesday. Of course, it's always good beating the USA in anything, especially in basketball. And then on from that, going 3-0 and in these exhibition games, it's a great preview to the Olympics. I don't think it means too, too much. I'm not getting too ahead of myself at the moment. We still have to get it done in group play. And then hopefully, if we go well in there, then in the knockout stages as well. But that is the best preparation that you could have asked for if you're an Australian team. Everyone seems to be clicking. Everyone's playing really well. Paddy Mills is looking like the best player in the world at times. You'll have a look at Matisse Thibel blocking Kevin Durant and looking like one of the best defenders in the world as well. Everyone seems to be doing their part, which is really exciting to see. So hopefully that translates to the actual tournament. Yeah, and I think that the thing that I took away from watching Australia is uh, the continuity. You know, the fact Absolutely. that these, these guys, not only we, – we've, we've discussed this before. If you haven't heard the Brian Gorgian podcast – he is the coach of the Australian national team and a, and a Southern California beach bum, by the way, Pepperdine <laughs> star in the seventies. Um, but Brian gave us a great uh, primer on why, why the basketball culture in Australia is so strong to your point, Chris, Matisse Thibel, man, so impressive uh, in Las Vegas. He's going to be a great addition. He's a young man who, um, and born, born of an American mom, uh, I believe a Nigerian dad, I could be wrong. Um, but I'm, but um, from the continent of Africa, he was born or he was raised in Australia and got citizenship while he was a young child there. His mom was a doctor. She since passed away. But uh, Matisse decided to cast his lot with a group of guys that he knew very little of going in other than playing against some of them in the NBA. So he's going to be a great addition. And one other point, you made it. Uh, Patty Mills is a free agent right now. He is still he would be a great addition to a playoff team, even if even a guy coming off the bench on a really good team. So kudos to him and kudos to the Aussies. And uh, and, and we should just mention Josh Giddy as well, getting some time in that third yeah. game against uh, Nigeria. Uh, obviously, wasn't selected in the main squad for the Boomers, but this is a really good opportunity for him to really yeah. be on the world stage, play in front of some NBA scouts ahead of the NBA draft later this year. He did his stocks 
no, it, it didn't hurt his stocks whatsoever no. based on his performance against Nigeria. He looked really, really good. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to see him live uh, when I was there for the two games because he didn't play in the first two. And Coach Gorgian rested some of the veterans against Nigeria. And they went out, the young guys went out and blew out Nigeria, obviously a team that's put themselves on the map. So uh, I'll be heading to uh, Stanford, Connecticut next week to be part of the NBC Sports Olympic basketball coverage. Looking forward to that. Uh, my, my partner will be Kate Scott, uh, terrific broadcaster from San Francisco. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, today we have a guy who should be going to Tokyo. Um, he's a world champion in three-on-three, Canyon Barry, an outstanding college player who finished his career playing for Michael White at the University of Florida. He was a SEC sixth man of the year. He's played in the G League. Uh, he's been in the NBA Summer League. He's obviously a very talented player. He is a world champion currently in FIBA three-on-three. Unfortunately, there was a huge buildup to three-on-three uh, -three basketball with the Olympic teams here in the United States. Robbie Hummel, former Purdue great NBA player, my colleague at ESPN. Canyon got hurt uh, leading up to the Olympic qualifying tournament. Um, he'll explain all that. He'll explain three-on-three, -three, which is uh, going to become a hot sport here. He'll exp explain the qualifying, and it's really, really a great podcast. Uh, he, and... Uh, the other bonus at the very end that Chris Tyler and I loved was his dad, Rick Barry, is one of the great basketball players of all time. His mom, Lynn, is one of the great collegiate players. Uh, she's one of the great players to ever play at William & Mary. She's a longtime USA basketball person. They live here in Colorado Springs, where I make my home. And the five to seven minutes that we got to talk with Kenyon Barry about shooting underhand free throws, at the end, Chris, you just don't want to miss it. It was incredible basketball talk. I'm hoping he can convert some plays, including Ben Simmons, <laughs> who he mentioned in this interview, to try some underhand free throws because the way that he broke it down really convinced me that yeah. this is the way to go for so many of these guys. The unfortunate thing is so many of them just don't want to get ridiculed, right? They don't want to be embarrassed. But as, Ken as, as Kenyon says, Ben Simmons, someone like Ben Simmons is already getting ridiculed really for his free throw shooting anyway. Yeah. Just give it a go. And he yeah. says exactly why. So make sure you listen to that part, especially. Really great stuff from Kenyon about exactly why people need to try uh, and, it. And and I'll just say, I'll just say, yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say, we, we don't mean to take shots at Ben Simmons on his podcast. We don't need to, but we like to. He, oh, comes, I like out, to. he comes up on these podcasts often. All right. Um, hey, if you like what we're doing, subscribe to the podcast, download the SiriusXM app, 56 episodes strong. We've got some great stuff, and you'll enjoy this. My talk with Canyon Barry, former Florida star and three-on-three -three world champ. Canyon, welcome to World of Basketball, my man. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, um, we're going to get into your background. You've got a unique background. Uh, you come from the, an ultimate basketball family, which we'll get into. But um, first of all, tell me, you you played at Charleston, and you finished up at, at – uh, at University of Florida, SEC Sixth Man of the Year. Um, we're going to get into some great stories about the fact that you once made 42 straight free throws at Florida and get into that a little bit and your career and your family, as I mentioned. But you are on the FIBA three-on-three -three basketball circuit. All of us who've ever played the game have grown up playing three-on-three. -three. FIBA has turned it into an Olympic sport. We'll get into the bittersweet um, 
moments that you guys suffered in May. But give me an idea what three-on-three basketball is at a level where you're playing with guys who are great college and, in some cases, former NBA players. Yeah, so three-on-three is not actually that brand new of a sport. You know, it's been going on in Europe for quite some time, and it just has never really gained that popularity that it has over there in the States. Um, So now with the kind of advent of it coming into the Olympics this year, I think it's poised to just have a breakout um, kind of showing in the, in the U S so it's four players playing uh, kind of on a half court basket. It's continuous action. So after you make a a basket, you immediately have to start defending the other team before they dribble out to the three point line. Um, There's no really checking it up during live play. So it's a super fun sport. It's ones and twos. The way FIBA kind of describes it is it's street ball, and the big thing is from the streets to the Olympics. So uh, I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. It's a super fast-paced, fun sport to watch, and I was fortunate enough to kind of just fall into my role um, with the national team for USA Basketball 3x3, and now I'm fortunate enough to be playing on the FIBA 3x3 World Tour with Team Princeton. So the way I describe it to people, it's kind of like beach volleyball. You know, it's – you know, a lot of the fundamentals are the same. It's a little bit different, obviously, because it's in a half court. But um, like beach volleyball, it's kind of just as fast paced. That's kind of, you know, I mean, there's a lot of action. I almost think it's like great a great conditioner, wouldn't it be? Oh, I'm telling you, after all the five on five you play, I'll finish a full season of five on five, feel like I'm in good shape, go play my first three on three game, and I am exhausted. The one 10-minute three-on-three game is way more tiring than an entire five-on-five game in only 10 minutes just because of the pace of play. It's so fast-paced. You barely get any breaks. You're constantly transitioning from offense to defense, and it's a little counterintuitive because people think, oh, it's a half court. You probably don't run as much, but a lot of basketball, when it's not full-speed transition, is you kind of jogging up the court. You get some rest in that change of ends in five on five, but with three on three, there's absolutely no break. So like you said, it's an unbelievable conditioning sport. And honestly, something that I think it's going to be used more in the States as a great teaching tool for high school players, college players, kids learning the game. Um, I mean, you know, basketball so well and how important fundamentals are and three on three teaches everything you could ever want because you have to be skilled in every aspect of the game with five on five. Now, uh, you kind of see these people being pigeonholed into certain roles. Like you have your three and D guys, you have your hard rim running centers, you have your point guards that are facilitators and you have your NBA all-stars that are asked to score 25 a game and do it all. But in three on three, you have to be good in every area of the game because there's nowhere to hide. You have to be able to handle the ball. You have to be able to pass the ball. You have to be a good screener. You have to be a good cutter. You have to be able to rebound. You have to be able to, to shoot. Shooting is so important with, with the ones and twos. So I think it's the perfect way for high school coaches to kind of groom players to be good, fundamentally sound basketball players with um, great conditioning coming in as a plus on top of all of it. See, you took it. You took the words right out of my mouth. When I learned about three on three a couple of years ago, I told Scott Drew at Baylor that this would be a great preseason conditioner. The other thing, and I want to know how you feel about this, because you mentioned so many things that I was thinking as you were describing it is quick decision making for young players. Like that's something I don't think we'd ever necessarily put a lot of time in, in five on five is quick decision-making, which you have in three on three. Absolutely. Um, You know, with, with three on three, a lot of the successful three on three that you don't really see here in some of the leagues, like the big three is it's not one-on-one basketball at all. 
The yeah. FIBA 3X3 is totally a team-oriented game that relies on passing, cutting, slipping screens, reading defenses, ball screens. And like you said, you get those quick decisions. On top of that, it teaches you to think like a basketball player because there's no coach on the floor. So you have to be able to analyze the situation, understand what's going on, and be able to figure out, okay, how can my team adjust to what they're doing in a short time frame? You'll get one time out a game. So you have to be able to think on the fly, analyze, and it teaches a high basketball IQ. If somebody, you know, as, as I said, it's different than the three on three we grew up playing with on the playground or the Y. And now when you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s, it's a different three on three. If someone would have described to you like the best, the, the optimum strategy and maybe like makeup of a team, because like in, and you'll, you can get into this in a second, like with your current team, Robbie Hummel, a good friend of ours and obviously a teammate of yours, uh, NBA player, now a broadcaster. He's got certain skills. You've got a big guy in Kareem Maddox who played at Princeton. Describe like the optimum three-on-three team. Yeah, so for me, I think the key is, number one, is chemistry. You have to have great chemistry with how the game is played, which is crucial. So um, actual getting into position-wise, I think size is very important. A lot of these teams now are six, four to six, eight across the board with some teams throwing in a shorter guy and a taller guy. Other guys kind of have the six, 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 four across lineup. Um, ideally, uh, I think it'd be great to have like three guys between six, four and six, eight, and then maybe one guy, six, eight, six, nine. But the key is everyone needs to be able to shoot that ones and twos is crucial. It would be like having a four point shot in the NBA. So two pointers are supremely important. You have to have all good shooters where every player can knock down the shot. And then I think, like you said, the high basketball IQ is crucial because the actions you're running, being able to adapt on the fly. And that's why we're so fortunate with our team. You know, Robbie, high IQ guy who's played in the league, unbelievable shooter, can really stroke it. You know, you have Kareem Maddox, a big guy who played at Princeton. So he's great at passing the back doors. He's great in that high post action. He's super athletic, one of the best defenders on the circuit, and can shoot the three. So he's a perfect three-on-three playing big. You know, you have me who's able to score at high levels with Team Princeton. Uh, I think I kind of bring something they haven't really had before with the ability to create off the bounce a little bit, get other guys shots, score around the rim, and obviously shoot it at a, well, a high level. And then, you know, we have – Three or four other guys that can come in. We have some smaller guys, Damon Huffman, Craig Moore, who are elite shooters, really high IQ guys, played in you know Northwestern and uh and Brown. So they really know the game very well. And they kind of run the team, you know, they're uh, the brains behind the operation and have played more three-on-three than all of us combined. You know, they've been playing it for years. So uh, I think we have a great team. And like you said, ideally, if I could pick an NBA team with uh the three-on-three, I think I would take KD. Kawhi, LeBron, and <laughs> maybe like a James Harden. And just, I think, you know, and everyone always says, it's funny we bring this up is uh, when we won the World Cup a couple years ago in 2019, yeah. you know, Robbie and, and all of us were just getting roasted on Twitter. Like, this is the team the U.S. is sending to compete in the World Cup. Like, who the hell are these guys? You know, we have the best NBA players in the world. And we're sending these schmucks over there to try to play with the U.S. But um, what a lot of people don't realize is, FIBA basically structured three on three so that NBA players can't play in it um, with all the foreign tournaments you have to go to. It's during the off season. Um, no NBA owners are going to let their all-stars go play in these, you know, random FIBA events across the country, especially with how physical um, they let the game be called, you know, 
I call uh, 3x3 the anti-freedom of movement sport, where the NBA has gone total freedom of movement. FIBA is anti-freedom of movement, where you're grabbing, you're holding, um, crazy physical. So uh, a lot of people don't realize the work that's gone in behind the scenes and, and why you know, all of us have played in all these events and tournaments to try to help the U.S. get to the Olympics like we talked well, about. Let's explain it because it, it, you're right. I, I think it's harder. It seems on the women's side, it's easier to send your best players because we're sending WNBA players. But let's start with you first. How did you get into three on? Like, how did you get your mom? Your mom, Lynn, has been a big part of USA basketball. She was a great player in her own right at William & Mary. Your dad, I haven't said this, we've gone 10 minutes without telling people your dad is Rick Barry, who is my generation, my era. He's a little older, obviously, but a Hall of Famer. He's one of the great. You didn't you didn't see him play live. He's one of the great players in the history of the game. Um, But leaving those guys aside for now, we'll get back to them later. How did you as a former college player and a guy that has played at a high level G League, been in NBA Summer League in a right situation, could have made an NBA team and still might, you know, how did you get involved in three on three? For sure. So it was kind of a, a random thing. Like we talked about, I'd never heard of three on three, really. I never knew it was going to be in the Olympics or had all that popularity over in Europe. So my mom was at the women's final four uh, watching, meeting up with some of her USA basketball friends. And she started talking to them and they said, oh, you know, your son, I think, would be a really good three-on-three player. You know, he has the skill set where he's tall, he's fundamentally sound, he's good in all aspects of the game. You should really look into it. My mom's like, what is three-on-three? What? I've never heard of that. So she calls me up and she's like, hey, you should look into this after your G League season. It could be fun. So I hopped on a call with uh, Jay Demings from USA Basketball, and he kind of talked me through, this is three-on-three, this is what we're looking to do. We need a, a bigger player pool. We're trying to get the U.S. qualified for the Olympics. Are you interested? And I said, absolutely. So at the end of the G League season, USA Basketball kind of sent off a blast email to a bunch of G League players just saying, hey, if you're interested, we'd love to have you out to Las Vegas for the 3x3 National Championship um, with Red Bull and USA Basketball. And we'll put you through a two-day training camp where we teach you the rules, some strategy, and then kind of throw you to the Wolves and go play the National Championship. So I flew out there. did the training camp. A lot of the Princeton guys were there um, kind of teaching us the rules. We had uh, some film sessions where we watched some three on three and then basically just went on the court and tried to learn some. And they put us into four different teams of G League guys. And then we played in the three X three national championship. And from that national championship, there was a selection committee to pick the USA world cup team for 2019. So I played really well at that event, but my team went 0-4. We lost every game. So I was like, shoot, well, you know, I had fun, but I doubt anything's going to come of this. You know, it was a good experience. Great to play with USA on your chest, yada, yada, yada. But a couple of weeks later, I got the call and they said, hey, we're really impressed with how you played. I know you went 0-4, but we'd be honored if you could join the USA World Cup team. And um, I was super excited. You know, that's a dream of every child athlete, I think, is to be in the Olympics or to be in the World Cup or to be um, able to play and represent your country at the highest level where you're donning the the red, white, and blue and have USA across your chest. So I was super fortunate to be selected for that and very thankful to USA Basketball for the opportunity as well as my teammates because um, a lot of those guys were on Princeton. And obviously I kind of took a spot from uh, another one of their teammates, but they were all very welcoming and really took me under their wing and taught me how to play three on three and 
um, we were able to win the World Cup. And it was actually a big accomplishment. You know, everyone thinks the U.S. has been so dominant in basketball, which we have been in five on five. But in three on three, it's the opposite. We had never won a World Cup as a men's team. And we were kind of, you know, the underdogs. Serbia, um, Latvia have always been, you know, really good 3x3 powerhouses, those Eastern European countries. Are there, are, yeah, I gotta, yeah, well, let me go. Well, first of all, you mentioned the guys from Princeton and Brown, and they were really, they're high IQ guys. Just tell me what your major was in college. Uh, I did physics in undergrad at College of Charleston and then finished up my master's in nuclear engineering at uh, okay. Florida. So I think your IQ for the game probably fits those guys as well. I knew that, by the way. I just wanted you to say that. For um, sure. Um, but, okay, so you mentioned Princeton a couple of times. Um, there's a guy, John Rogers, who played at Princeton. I remember watching John in the late 70s, early 80s. John has gone on to be a super, super influential uh, business leader in America, uh, a, a kind of a Wall Street guy, even though he's a Chicago guy, um, friend of the president, former President Obama, a uh, friend of Craig Robinson, who is the president's brother-in-law, teammate of his. Why the three-on-three -three stuff? How did that start with John Rogers? And when I hear Team Princeton, how did that all get started? Yeah, so I think John Rogers was – super influential early on because when the U.S. wanted to start putting teams in these events, you know, we didn't really have the funding and it's hard to ask people with jobs and families and everything to just say, all right, pick everything up and go play in all these overseas events. So I think John really stepped up to the plate. And again, you'd probably be better off talking to, to Craig Moore or, or Robbie or those guys. They know um, John a lot better than I did. I've, I've met him a couple of times. Unbelievable guy. So smart, um, you know, just just a great guy and has been crucial for America's success in three on three. So I think he was kind of able to and he was playing three on three originally. I think that's how he kind of got into it and realized, you know, come from the Princeton, the play the game the right way background and how Princeton offense is, is very similar to how three on three is played with back cuts and screening and reading the defense. So I think that's kind of appealed to him. And he was. Uh, generous enough to kind of foot the bill and pay for some of the fees to get into these challengers over in Europe and kind of support team Princeton as it was coming up to the level it's at now where we couldn't have done any, anything that we're doing now without his, you know, generosity from the beginning. So um, again, I'm not the best person to speak to this. I've met him a couple of times, but those guys could give you a, a better answer, but he's been super involved and, and still is, you know, we went out to, San Diego, unfortunately, I was injured and I couldn't go, but the rest of the Olympic qualifying team was in San Diego before our training camp in L.A. And they were at John Rogers house um, training, getting uh, getting extra reps. In, and he was fortunate and kind enough to have that space and let us use it to train for three on three. So he's, cool. he's been a crucial key aspect of, of three on three in the United States. All right. Let's talk about the disappointment because. Um... Really, after the world championships that you guys won, you mentioned it. Where where was that held? Somewhere in Europe. That was it was in Amsterdam. Amsterdam. That's right. You guys, um, you guys created a lot of buzz, particularly particularly on social media. Uh, UCA, US, USA basketball is very involved with promoting your success. I I certainly tried to do it as uh, someone who um, you know um, uh, really cares about USA basketball. So there was a lot of excitement. And then right before, how did you get hurt? You, you bet. Let's, let's just tell people you missed the, uh, the qualifying tournament. I did. Did you get hurt playing? Yeah. So 
it kind of goes back a while. So after the World Cup, you know, it was roses and everyone was happy. And then, you know, it wasn't a immediate selection into the Olympic qualifying team. It was a whole process. So during NBA All-Star break in Chicago, um, we had a, a pool of players come in and had a tryout to be selected for the Olympic qualifying team. And USA Basketball decided to take three of the Olympic qualifying team members in Kareem Maddox, Robbie Hummel, and myself, and then added in Dominique Jones, who plays for another uh, American team on the FIBA circuit, uh, New York Harlem. And he was the top ranked player in the world point wise for the U.S. So um, he was selected on the team and we started training. We were getting ready to go. We were in L.A. about to fly over to the qualifying tournament in India and COVID hits. So we're literally at practice. Jay disappears. He's gone for a couple hours. We're like, where's Jay? What's going on? He comes back and says, guys, I got some bad news. You know, the qualifying tournament has been canceled. So then I'm sure you know the rest. Everyone's impacted by COVID. Eight months of nothing, no gym access, no leaving the house, all that crazy stuff. So finally, COVID starts to let up a little bit and USA Basketball calls and say, okay, great. We're going to have a training camp in Orlando. So all of us get together in Orlando. We have a good training camp. It's the first time we've ever played together as a unit. So um, obviously Kareem, Robbie and I had played together, but we had Damon in the Olympic qualifying tournament. And now we have Damo. So Damo's a great three on three player, but we've never played together. And as I said before, chemistry is so important in three on three. So Orlando was a great way for us to kind of get some kinks out. We played against the USA select team, which was basically made up of uh, a couple other Princeton and Harlem world tour teams. And we had super close scrimmages, you know, the first couple of scrimmages, they kicked our butts and we were like, Oh God, we got to figure this out. But um, we developed good chemistry and we're feeling good. And we go back home and I'm like, all right, great. I'm going to go to play some pickup basketball. And I just have an awful ankle sprain. I tear three ligaments in my ankle and I'm freaking out at this point. Cause it's, four and a half weeks till our training camp before we leave for Austria and the qualifying tournament. So I'm like, Oh gosh, I don't know if I'm going to be healthy. So I actually go up to the university of Florida, super nice of them. They still let me use all the facilities. They have great um, strength and conditioning coaches and a trainer, you know, Duke Warner, Preston green. And they let me do my rehab for that ankle injury at the university of Florida. So I am just six to eight hours a day of rehab. there doing, um, you know, cold tanks, stim, ice, hibamat, uh, hypergravity treadmill, so I can stay in good conditioning without getting too much pounding on my ankle. So I rehab the crap out of it. It doesn't feel great, but I'm able to play enough that we fly out to LA. Red Bull has put on a unbelievable house in Beverly Hills. Um, I don't know if you know this, but our Olympic team is actually sponsored by Red Bull. So shout out to them. They're a, a great company and, and really athlete centered and kind of do whatever they can to help their athletes. And for us, that was putting us up in this beautiful mansion in Beverly Hills with a full three X three court in the backyard where we could train and lift weights without having to deal with the COVID protocols of going to gyms. And we had our own little bubble in this house, which was unbelievable. So we get there and about the second day in we're playing on this outdoor court and there's two types of sport court for three X three. A lot of people aren't going to care about this, but there's uh Enlio court and then there's sport court. And 
all the actual big events are played on Enlio court, which has a little bit better grip and sport court kind of moves underneath you. So the first day, both Robbie and I on this kind of court that slides underneath you tweak our backs a little bit. And we're like, ah, you know, nothing too bad. Um, so we take a couple of days off and then are feeling good, go back to playing again. And unfortunately the first two minutes of a scrimmage, I just feel my back go out and I had to go get an MRI and I herniated two discs in my lower back. So I was bent over. I mean, you guys know how it is. Back pain is just the worst. When you have your back pain, you cannot do anything. Like I couldn't move. I couldn't stand. I couldn't walk. So I do everything in my power to try to heal it before the qualifying tournament, but I just wasn't able to get back healthy. So I had the hard conversation with USA basketball and they were great saying, you know, if you feel like you can play, it's your spot, you've earned it. We want you on the team. But we also had to think um, with three on three, if you get hurt after you've played some games, you're not allowed to replace any members of the team. So if I did happen to get hurt again or get injured, um, they would have to play with three people, which is just a death sentence because it's like we talked about earlier, the conditioning, there's no possible way you could have win a tournament with just three people. So um, my back was awful. I couldn't play. And we made the decision to name an alternate to the team. Um, Joey King, who plays for New York Harlem, who's a good, a good three on three player. And, um, you know, I felt so bad to kind of leave the guys hanging and we had worked so hard for this and then to kind of have it taken away at the, at the literally last possible second was um, a, a hard pill to swallow. And, and they went over there and gave it their best effort and just fell a little bit short. So um, unfortunately the U S didn't qualify for the Olympics this year. And, you know, I, I like to think that if I was over there playing, things would have been different and that I would have brought something, you know, unique to the team and, and help that chemistry because now instead of having just kind of one new guy in Dominique that we had to bring into the fold, it was, we had to bring in him and Joey King literally two days before the events even happening that they have to try to figure out this chemistry and, and how they're going to win. So, so, so um, the crazy thing about this is someone told me, uh, Kenyon, is that FIBA has set it up really to make it, an, I hate to put it this way, an anti-U.S. sport in the sense that like you guys were the reigning world champions. You should have had an automatic slot absolutely into, into the Olympic Games and like, I think the way you guys were ranked going in, you were like, like Mongolia was ahead of you guys, right? Yeah. Then, so again, I don't want to speak too much about this with FIBA. I'm yeah. still playing on their world tour and I need to get some calls from the refs. So right, I don't want right. to say anything too bad, but no, I a hundred percent agree. It's a travesty that the winner of the world cup doesn't get an automatic bid to the Olympics. And then on top of that, with how the points were structured, big, Big FIBA events were worth the most points, but it wasn't enough. So teams like China, for example, where how it works is you take your top 100 three-on-three players and you count all their points. So China said, all right, we have 100 guys that went to all 10 of these events and have X number of points. And then with us, we might only have 10 or 12 people in the U.S. that are even playing three-on-three -three at that level. So, yes, we won a bunch of these big tournament events, but we didn't have enough points to get an at-large bid to the Olympics, which um, FIBA has so now restructured their point system. Yeah. And if we went by that point system, we would have gotten in. So they basically were using three on three to grow the game around the world. Exactly. A hundred percent. And yeah. that's even, I'm glad you bring that up because one of the teams that gets a bid is called a universality bid, where if your five on five team isn't good and hasn't made the Olympics in basketball, then 
you get to play in a separate tournament where if you win that, you get to go in, which I understand growing the game. But to me, it's frustrating because the Olympics is supposed to be the pinnacle of athletics. And for the first time that three on three is going to be in the Olympics, why would you not want the best teams competing? Why do you want some country who is not as good as the other countries in the Olympics when you could have, you know, even for TV viewership, when the U.S. and China and teams like that are in, it's going to grow the game even more. So I don't really understand it, but, you know, it is FIBA's brainchild and, and they're working to change it. And I think it will continue to grow and be better in the future with the qualification system. But that's kind of how the chips fell this year. And it's, you know, super sad that we're not going to see the U.S. Um, men's team in the Olympics. Very proud of the women. They went in and got it done in Austria and are, are going to be competing. So we'll uh, get to uh, cheer them on in Tokyo. So who's the right, who's the randomest team in the men's three on three? Give me like, is it like Bahrain or is it? Uh, I mean, Belgium Latin? got in, I think uh, Poland got in. I, yeah. And this is what kills me is, is Poland got into the Olympics <laughs> and we beat Poland, I think 21 to three at the world cup or yeah, something crazy it. like that. It. It's just like, uh, it's frustrating it. and no, no bash to Poland. I mean, they're great three on three players and they had a great tournament in yeah. Austria. Um, but I mean, I feel like we we deserve to be there and we didn't get it done. So that's something you have to live with as an athlete. And especially for me, it's hard because it's one of those things where if I had been able to go and we didn't qualify, at least then I can lay my head on my pillow and say, you know what? I gave it my best effort. It didn't happen, but I can live with that. But now it's one of those things where I'll never know. Would we have qualified if I played? Could I have changed something? Which is a hard pill to swallow. But yeah, it is I, what it is. That's sports. Yeah, and you're but you've just gotten back from a FIBA event where did you guys you guys won a FIBA a FIBA event? With, we did with a group that I know you're very comfortable with now. You mentioned Kareem Maddox and and Robbie Hummel and Craig Moore, Robbie's buddy from the Big Ten, mm-hmm. has been a longtime three on three guy. So here's what I want to know: You're 27, Robbie's a little bit older. Um, the the Olympics in Paris are only three years away, not four. Yep. I'm sensing I'm sensing from you at your age um that you you that you you're gonna give this a shot absolutely i think i got enough legs left in in me enough gas in the tank for one more uh olympic run um i try to convince robbie every day to to hold out but uh he he says the golf course is a strong draw and uh you know i don't know if his his back and he's always been made of glass you know i joke with him he's been injury plagued his whole career. I think he would have had a, a long, um, a long NBA career, but um, I hope he holds out. I know Kareem wants to, and, and we'll see what happens. You know, I think, like you said, the one blessing of COVID is that now the Olympics are only three years out, not four where it's not quite as long of a wait, but still just got to take it one day at a time, one tournament at a time and, and see what happens in the future. Let me, let's just talk about you personally. You grew up here in Colorado Springs, Cheyenne mountain high school, which is, uh, for those who are listening, I now am a full-time resident of Colorado Springs. And ironically, you and I live about a mile from each other. Um, great high school career. You were not just a basketball player. I understand that uh, you were a multi-sport. There are many people who can say they have a state title in badminton. You know, so you've, uh, you've got like a renaissance man's background with tennis, badminton, basketball, playing instruments. Um what's it like growing up in a basketball family? I mean, my two sons are in coaching now. Your mom, your dad was in a Hall of Famer. He's a great player, one of the greatest ever. Coach, broadcaster, great broadcaster. 
What's it? What was it like growing up in a bit? Your mom was a great player. Is she still the all-time leading scorer at William and Mary? She, I don't know if she, I think someone else might've passed the record, right. but um, you know, she was up there. And like you said, was a great player at William and Mary. What's that? What's that? What's that like being a young guy and you're growing up in a family of people who just love the game the way you've turned out to love it. Absolutely. I think everyone kind of asked, did you feel pressure growing up to play basketball with all your brothers and mom and dad playing? And the truth is I never really did. I think it's one of those things where the environment you grow up in shapes the person that you are. And I grew up around the game of basketball. So naturally I kind of gravitated towards it and have that love of the game and passion for it. And I look at it as a blessing. You know, I don't think there is a better basketball family around from top to bottom that has had, um, you know, the success that the Barry family has had with five brothers playing division one basketball, all of them playing professionally in the NBA or Europe, my dad with his illustrious career. So I think it's just such a blessing to have that wealth of knowledge around me as I was growing up, you know, anything that I was going through on the basketball court, someone else in my family had been through, whether it was high school basketball, college recruiting, college basketball, draft process, you know, playing overseas, playing in the NBA. Um, and the cool thing of that was, is if I did make the Olympics, I was going to be the first Barry to be an Olympian. And I think that would have been a really cool story and hopefully one that pans out in the future in Paris, like we were talking about, but no, I just feel super blessed to have um, such a great family around me and they never pushed me into basketball. I just kind of fell into it and was something that I loved. So um, to be able to have that knowledge and experience around me where I could always bounce ideas off of them or get advice was just the best. Yeah. See, I'm going to give you a little secret. You don't know this. I was almost your coach at college at Charleston. I really? I turned that job down. Coach Cress and Coach Cremens came up to see me up at ESPN in Charlotte. And uh, the only reason, and because your athletic director was a very good friend at the time, Joe Hull. Yeah. And the only reason I turned it down is my son, Matt, was going into a senior year of high school. And Matt ended up, you know, fortunately going to Harvard and playing for Tommy Amaker. But uh, you had you had you had a good, a really good career at Charleston. And uh, um, you went to the University of Florida to play for a good friend of mine, Michael White. Um, yeah. And Coach White, uh, you were the SEC six man of the year. What was the, by the way, okay, this is why I just thought of this. How much your dad is one of the great shooters of all time. And of course, if you don't know anything about basketball, your dad is the, probably the last remaining guy who shot underhand free throws. And I know you're probably sick of dealing with this and talking about it, but you once made 42 straight free throws um, I, this is a dumb question. Are there free throws in three on three? There are free throws in three on three so, and I still shoot them underhanded. So yeah. do you catch any heat from the crowds? Um, a little bit. It's the similar to college where the first yeah. time you did everyone's jaw kind of hits the floor and they're looking around like, did he really just do that? Um, but no, at this point, I think a lot of people have kind of grown used to the fact that I shoot underhand free throws, at least in the G league. And, um, obviously it's, um, a little bit of a surprise playing overseas where no one does it over there. And uh, it's one of those things where I'm a huge advocate of the underhand free throw. And I think it's something that we need to talk about because nothing is more frustrating to me than seeing high level NBA players continue to struggle from the free throw line. Yeah. So my, here's my spiel. I'm going to have to throw it out there. I want to hear, by uh, the way, your dad, your dad is a pretty good advocate of this too. So I want you to take the mantle from him right now. For sure. So here's my thing. 90% and above, you're a great free throw shooter. 
80% and above is a good free throw shooter. No need to change. Just keep practicing. 70% and above, you're an average okay free throw shooter. And at 70% or above, I don't think you should switch to underhand. I think you should just continue to practice, work on your free throws, work on your routine, and try to get to that 80% number. But here's where we start getting interesting. If you're below 70%, you're shooting 40, 50, 60%. You got to change something. I mean, that's atrocious from the free throw line. And you're leaving so many points on the, on the floor. So many games are won and lost by a couple points where, especially over the course of the season, you could add multiple wins to your team's column if you shot underhanded or at least were willing to change. And my thing is... Um, you know, I know a lot of people now are getting on like Ben Simmons and people for missing a lot of free throws. I think he's the perfect candidate to switch to underhanded. Originally, I was always saying, I think a lot of people don't switch because of the flack they're going to take and the harassment and the making fun of. But I don't know if people can make fun of you more. I mean, Ben Simmons is already getting killed on social media and he's already taking a lot of flack. So why not try and make the switch? You know, I applaud everyone that's willing to look. I think the guy from uh, Louisville, Shania... Uh, I don't yeah, remember well, his name, but I think he switched. Uh, yeah. And- uh, uh, yeah, what was it? Uh, 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 Renzi. I, I remember. Her, I remember he, his brother. You know, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah Anawaku. 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 Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's Anawaku. it. Um, yep. uh, and I applaud him. You know, I think his percentage even went up a little bit, and that was without any technical coaching whatsoever. His underhanded technique was not good, and I would have been happy to you know go work with him. But I think it's a travesty that people aren't willing to switch, but I, I don't blame them entirely because there's not many people that can teach it. You know, it's really just my family that has access to that, but you know, I want to throw it out there. I'm more than happy to meet with any NBA player who is, who is shooting poorly from the free throw line, you know, just fly me out there. I'm happy to spend a couple of days teaching you the form. If you don't like it, you don't have to switch, but if you do switch, we can work something out where I could be a, uh, underhand free throw coach on the side and make a little extra bucks. But yeah, no, I mean, I think. Have you had teammates? Have you had teammates in the G league or, or when you were in college, ask you about it? And um, obviously they saw the success. I mean, you shot exactly like you shot 90, you were right at 90 at Florida. I think 88, five, 89. Yeah. Yeah. And um, most of the teammates will mess around with it after practice, like five minutes, just joking around, trying to figure it out. No one's ever actually, come to me and said, Hey, I'm thinking about switching. Um, but I have hopes that, that someone will, you know, this year I went 21 for 21. I was hundred percent through my entire G league season. So it was like the statistics are there. Uh, you know, I'm a big math science guy from the engineering background. Um, sports science has done studies on it. The reason it's such a good shot is because it's such a repeatable motion. When you're doing that overhand free throw, you have three joints that have to work in unison at your wrist, your elbow, and your shoulder. So to have a repeatable motion, there's a lot more that can go wrong with an overhand shot versus underhanded. You're only shooting one joint that's moving, which is your shoulder. So the muscle memory comes faster. It's a more repeatable motion. It's a softer shot. It comes in at a lower trajectory. So the science even says it's a great way to shoot free throws. Now it's just a matter of if people are willing, uh, willing to switch. And, um, you know, I think another thing that people don't talk enough about free throws is routine. You know, every college coach preaches routine, but I think there's more to it than that. So for me, again, being a math science guy, like Giannis, who has a nine, sometimes 13 second routine, every time you shoot a free throw, you should do your routine, even when you're practicing. So when he practices free throws, 
Every time he shoots the free throws, it's 10 seconds. The reason I do my free throws is I don't take any dribbles. I don't spin the ball. I don't do anything. And why is that? Because I'm a more efficient practicer then. Because every time my routine takes two seconds. So I can get off five free throw practice attempts in the time that Giannis is shooting one free throw practice attempt. So for me, I've never understood why people have a super long free throw routine. Because if you're practicing the right way from the line, you're doing that routine every single time you shoot a free throw. So I might get up a hundred more free throws in the span of 30 minutes than Giannis, which for me, that would be one of the first things that I would talk to them and try to change. And again, you have to be comfortable with your routine. So if it's two, three, four seconds, fine. So be it. But nine, 10 second routine. I think it's, I think it's insane. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that the underhand free throw doesn't stop with me and die. When I stop playing basketball, I think it's such a great shot and hopefully someone's listening and we can convince them to, uh, to try to switch to the, the underhanded free throw. So when you have it, when you have a son someday, will he shoot underhand free throws? Um, if he wants to play basketball and if he wants to learn, then absolutely. You know, I'm more than happy to teach him. And I knew the technique growing up from a young age, but didn't make the switch until about junior year in high school. Um, I just kind of went to my dad and was like, Hey, I want to get a couple seasons under my belt before college starts and he says well that's great son but don't you think it would have been nice to practice over the summer instead of two weeks before your season started which (laughs) you know is probably right but um you know I wasn't a great underhanded free throw shooter my first probably four years I mean I was average I was 75 76 percent which again is not good it didn't hit that 80 percent mark but I knew that if I stuck with it eventually I would get to that high level and about three years in the light bulb goes off the muscle memory clicks in you have that 10,000 hour repetition rule and it just, it clicked. And now I'm, you know, a 90, 180, upper 80% free throw shooter for the rest of my career, hopefully. Yeah, that's cool. That is really cool stuff, man. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fundamentals guy. And I love the idea of the less motion in your shot, even, even jump shots and, and other mm-hmm. parts of that shooting game. Uh, the less, the, the fewer variables, the better to me, it's more repeatable if you're, your shot is compact. And that's the ultimate. The underhand free throw is the ultimate compact free uh, free throw. It makes perfect Definitely. sense. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you're going to get harassed at the free throw line regardless when you're at, at away games. And, um, you know, I've had a couple funny ones. I think the best one I can remember, I was in high school shooting underhanded free throws and uh, I, I missed one. And the entire student section from the other crowd started chanting, you're adopted which I thought was pretty funny because, you know, just with my dad and his free thing. So I had to give him props for that one. That was pretty good. Or another one, I was shooting a free throw um, and I made it. And I was running down the court and the ref looks at me. He's like, who do you think you are? Rick Barry's son. And I was like, well, actually, yeah, he's up there in the stand <laughs> right next to me. So um, that's cool. No, right. but you know, as much flack as you take, if you're making free throws, no one can say anything. And, and that's, yeah. that's what it comes down to. That's really cool. All right. Last thing, bittersweet. Um, give us a quick rundown of three on three in the Olympics. Which teams you've played against these teams, many of them, most of them, especially the good ones. Um, who do you think is the favorite to win three on three? Before I we know USA is gonna be the favorites in 24, but who who's gonna who is a team to watch when we're watching three on three in the Olympics? Um, for sure. So with the women, you gotta give gotta give the nod to the US women's team. Um, I think. From top to bottom, they're the four best three-on-three players in the world. You know, I think they're just head and shoulders, the best players. I'm so impressed watching them and how little three-on-three they played for them to go out and do what they did in Austria. And I think they're only going to get better. So 
Um, I'm going to be rooting for them. I think they have a good chance to bring home gold for the country, which would be amazing. And then on the men's side, Serbia and Latvia are so tough. They've played three on three for so long and they've played together for so long. And I think like we talked about earlier, um, <clears throat> just the ability to know where your team is going to be and just have that kind of sense of just camaraderie and, um, you know, just playing together when they yeah, play together continuity. for 10 years, Con they know exactly where, yeah. exactly continuity yeah. where everyone's going to be. That's the word I was looking yeah. for. So yeah. they've been so successful at the highest level. They're always top of the FIBA three X three circuit. So I think look for Serbia and Latvia to be um, standing on that metal podium. I can. And this is great stuff, man. You gave us a great primer on Olympic three on three basketball, uh, obviously touched on your career, your family, um, we wish you nothing but the best. Uh, you are going to, I can tell right now after one podcast with you, you are heading to broadcasting. We, you and I are going to talk about that here shortly. Um, your dad has obviously been a great broadcaster. Um, continued success on the basketball court. We would love to see you in Paris in 24. Love to see you uh, qualify because you put the work in. Uh, bad luck this year with your injury. And we wish you nothing but the best. And, uh, you know, you and I will stay in close touch. And um, I'm going to be pulling for you and pulling for three-on-three -three basketball in the Olympics from the U.S. Yes. All right. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun being on here. And uh, good luck in Tokyo. Fly safe and uh, have a good time over there. Many thanks to uh, Canyon Barry, uh, FIBA three-on-three -three world champion. Uh, someone we hope will be a part of the 2024 Olympic Games. He gave us just a incredible uh primer on what uh olympic three-on-three -three basketball is and uh many thanks to him um and uh listen if you like what we're doing please download that sirius xm app we're getting great feedback from many of our shows and uh you can really help us by uh downloading the uh podcast on uh, apple spotify listen go back and listen on sirius xm we love it we love what we're doing. We're going to continue to bring you great basketball content from around the world. We, we, uh, we're actually absolutely enjoying this. And I will be part of the Olympic Games uh, coming up for NBC Sports. Looking forward to that. And uh, it means very simply that when I bring you from another place in my world of basketball next week, probably have something to do with being in Tokyo. World of Basketball is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Chris Tyler. Sound designed by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. A special thanks also to Sirius XM, Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Mr. Steve Collin. Sirius XM Podcasts.